Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia, and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, and we're coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL. Pleased to be able to bring you our founder's view of law and government. Very simply stated, put there in the opening paragraphs of the Declaration of Independence, there is a creator God, and they identify that as the God of the Bible. There's a creator God. Our rights come from him and from him alone. And the third point is the only purpose of human civil government is to secure and to protect those God-given rights. Well, we're in the midst of a study here of one of the most significant pieces of legislation that passed through Congress during the era of the Articles of Confederation. We have just finished uh, studying the Articles of Confederation several weeks back. And uh, this was kind of the the supreme accomplishment, legislatively speaking, of the Articles of Confederation government. And it's so significant because we're going to see today as we dive into uh, Article or Section 14 and all the Articles of Section 14, this really lays the groundwork for our Bill of Rights. As we said it when we studied the Federalist and Anti-Federalist, the Bill of Rights would not have been created had it not been for the Anti-Federalist opposing this Constitution unless it was amended, unless it was added to a Bill of Rights. And uh, the Anti-Federalist ultimately won that argument in the sense that the Bill of Rights was the first thing the new Congress under our United States Constitution, Constitution produced. So the question as to what was going to be the contents of that Bill of Rights, well, very interestingly here, the timing of the Northwest Article, the Northwest Ordinance, this was July 13th, 1787. So as uh, the, the the delegates to the Continental Congress were in the midst of debating and ratifying ultimately the Constitution, which became our new federal government. The old federal government under the Articles of Confederation was putting forth something that laid the groundwork for our Bill of Rights. And so although uh, Section 14 is the longest part of uh, the Northwest Ordinance, I think it is by uh, all all counts the most important part of the Northwest Ordinance in terms of what went forward with our Bill of Rights. Well, Phil, why don't you bring us your thoughts here on the Northwest Ordinance, Section 14. Section 14 of the Northwest Ordinance is a Declaration of Rights, which may have been modeled after Virginia's Declaration of Rights. And the National Archives website states this about Virginia's document. Virginia's Declaration of Rights was drawn upon by Thomas Jefferson for the opening paragraphs of the Declaration of Independence. It was widely copied by the other colonies and became the basis of the Bill of Rights, written by George Mason. It was adopted by the Virginia Constitutional Convention on June 12, 1776. The English Bill of Rights of 1689 was the forerunner of all Bills of Rights in the English-speaking world and probably within all nations. There's an overlap among these, but also significant differences. The focus of the English Bill of Rights is the limitation of powers that are vested in the monarchy as opposed to Parliament. For example, freedom of speech is guaranteed to members of Parliament, but the English Bill of Rights is silent on the subject of freedom of speech for the individual citizen. Individual citizens are granted the right of petition, but only to the king, not to other branches of government. Americans would have difficulty in accepting the English Bill of Rights' description of the so-called right to bear arms. Subjects which are Protestants may have arms for their defense suitable to their conditions, 
and as allowed by law. It is not just that non-Protestants are denied the right to bear arms, but that the fragile right may be further restricted by ordinary law. Here in the United States, the right to bear arms is essentially unconditional, and yet there are constant attempts to dilute that right through ordinary law. One idea was transmitted through all bills of rights to the current Bill of Rights in the Constitution of the United States. Excessive bail ought not to be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. A great deal of language in the English Bill of Rights addresses the issue of monarchical succession, which has no counterpart in Bills of Rights in the United States. As we consider the Declaration of Rights in the Northwest Ordinance, it is helpful to consider both its precedents and also its successor, the Bill of Rights, as it amended the Constitution of 1787. It should be apparent that the separation from Great Britain caused a restructuring of a fundamental governing of the fundamental governing documents that goes beyond the elimination of monarchy. In the United States, questions about the separation and vesting of powers is described in written constitutions, not just at the federal but also at the state level. Questions relating to the rights of individuals tends to be described in distinct sections of these constitutions, either as originally written or as amended. It is also useful to see the evolution of a right over time, such as freedom of speech. Finally, this analysis is a good time to consider the nature of human rights and those significant rights that are still denied to citizens by those who participate in government. Let's talk a little bit about organization of the Northwest Ordinance Declaration of Rights. Section 14 introduces six articles with this language. It is hereby ordained and declared by the authority aforesaid that the following articles shall be considered as articles of compact between the original states and the people and states in the said territory and forever remain unalterable unless by common consent to wit. There's no comparable language in the Bill of Rights of the Constitution. Northwest Ordinance uh, emphasizes that government has a responsibility to guarantee and protect the natural rights of the people. Note the parties in this compact. The original states, not the federal government, the people, not restricted to the Northwest Territory, and the states of the Northwest Territory. There were no states in the Northwest Territory in 1787 until Ohio was admitted to statehood in 1803. So the Northwest Ordinance was written to include those states that would be formed out of this territory. An article usually describes multiple individual rights. Article 1 is an exception. Article 1 states, no person demeaning himself in a peaceable and orderly manner shall ever be molested on account of his mode of worship or religious sentiments in the said territory. That contrasts with uh, Amendment 1 of the Constitution, which states, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The Northwest Ordinance version of this right is more comprehensive. Amendment 1 is limited to actions by Congress. Article 2. There's a long list of rights in this article. 
some of which require explanation. Entitlement to the benefits of the writ of habeas corpus. As stated in the Northwest Ordinance, this right is unconditional. As such, it is superior to the wording in Article 1, Section 9 of the Constitution, the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended unless, when in cases of rebellion or invasion, the public safety may require it. The latter wording is open to interpretation and abuse. Trial by jury. Proportionate representation of the people in the legislature. Um, and that is described in Article 1, Section 2 of the Constitution. Judicial proceedings according to the course of the common law. There's no reference to common law in the basic Constitution. A reference to the common law was added in Amendment 7 in connection with entitlement to trial by jury, but is not as comprehensive as in the Northwest Ordinance. All persons shall be bailable unless for capital offenses, where the proof shall be evident or the presumption great. Amendment 8 of the Constitution states that excessive bail shall not be required. The Northwest Ordinance was more specific. All fines shall be moderate, and no cruel or unusual punishments shall be inflicted. Also missing in the basic Constitution, but remedying the Bill of Rights in Amendment 8. No man shall be deprived of his liberty or property, but by the judgment of his peers or the law of the land, and should the public exigencies make it necessary for the common preservation to take any person's property or to demand his particular services, full compensation shall be made for the same. Missing in the basic Constitution, but remedied in the Bill of Rights in Amendment 5. No law ought ever to be made or have force in the said territory that shall in any manner whatever interfere with or affect private con contracts or engagements bona fide and without fraud previously formed. The Constitution claims in Article 1, Section 10 that no state shall impair legitimate contracts, but is silent about the federal government's powers. Article 3, religion, morality, and knowledge being necessary to good government and the happiness of mankind, schools and the means of education shall forever be encouraged. Note that this, is, this provision does not mandate a public education system, and it certainly would preclude a strictly, uh, strictly secular education system because religion, morality, and knowledge are necessary to good government. The only requirement in the Land Ordinance of 1785 was that District 16 was set aside for education, but the Northwest Ordinance only encouraged education, so private schools could have used that, that district as long as they provided instruction in religion and morals. Good faith shall always be observed toward the Indians. Their lands and property shall never be taken from them without their consent, and in their property rights and liberty, they shall never be invaded or disturbed unless in just and lawful wars authorized by Congress. But laws found in justice and humanity shall from time to time be made for preventing wrongs 
being done to them and for preserving peace and friendship with them. This thought is completely missing in the Constitution of the United States. However, it is unlikely that this provision was seriously respected. Let's look at Article 4. The said territory and the states, which may be formed therein, shall forever remain a part of this Confederacy of the United States of America, subject to the Articles of Confederation, and to such alterations therein as shall be constitutionally made, and all the acts and ordinances of the United States in Congress assembled, conformable thereto. This corresponds roughly to Article 4, Section 3 of the Constitution. The inhabitants and settlers in the said territory shall be subject to pay a part of the federal debts contracted, or to be contracted, and a proportional part of the expenses of government to be apportioned on them by Congress, according to the same common rule and measure by which apportionments thereof shall be made on the other states. And the taxes for paying their proportion shall be laid and leveled by the authority and direction of the legislatures of the district or districts or new states, as in the original states, within the time agreed upon by the United States in Congress assembled. This corresponded to the rule that applied to the original 13 states under the Articles of Confederation. The legislatures of these districts or new states shall never interfere <coughs> uh, with primary disposal of the soil of the United States in Congress assembled, nor with any regulations Congress may find necessary for securing the title in such soil to the bona fide purchasers. This is an affirm affirmation that the United States in Congress assembled was the owner of the land, not the territory or the subsequent states. No tax shall be imposed on lands, the property of the United States, and in no case uh, shall non-resident proprietors be taxed higher than residents. Again, this is an affirmation of taxing sovereignty that resided with the United States. The navigable waters leading into the Mississippi and St. Lawrence and the carrying places between the same shall be common highways and forever free, as well to the inhabitants of the said territory as to the citizens of the United States and those of any other states that may be admitted into the Confederacy without any tax, impost, or duty thereof. The key limitation is the interpretation of navigable. If by navigable, any river over which a canoe could traverse would be considered navigable. Article 5. There shall be formed in the said territory not less than three, nor more than five states, and the boundaries of the states, as soon as Virginia shall alter her act of session and consent to the same, shall become fixed and established as follows to wit. The western state in the said territory shall be bounded by the Mississippi, the Ohio, and Wabash rivers, a direct line drawn from the Wabash and Post Vincennes due north to the territorial line between the United States and Canada and by the said territorial line to the Lake of the Woods and Mississippi. The middle state shall be bounded by the said direct line, the Wabash from Post Vincent's 
to the Ohio by the Ohio by a direct line, direct drawn due north from the mouth of the Great Miami to the said territorial line. And by said territorial line, the eastern state shall be bounded by the last uh, mentioned direct line, the Ohio-Pennsylvania, and the said territorial line. Provided, however, it is further understood and declared that the boundaries of these three states shall be subject so far to be altered that if Congress shall hereafter find it expedient, they shall have authority to form one or two states in that part of the said territory, which lies north of and east uh, and west line drawn through the southerly bound bend or extreme of Lake Michigan. Ultimately, five states were formed out of, out of that language. Going on with the, the next uh, uh, provision in the uh, Declaration of Rights, whenever any of the said states shall have 60,000 free inhabitants there, therein, such state shall be admitted by its uh, delegates into the Congress of the United States on an equal footing with the original states in all respects whatever, and shall be at liberty to form a permanent constitution and state government, provided the constitution and government so to be formed shall be republican and in conformity to the principles contained in these articles, and so far as it can be consistent with the general interest of the Confederacy. Such admission shall be, shall be allowed at an earlier period and when there may be a less number of free inhabitants in the state than 60,000. Note that the 60,000 inhabitants rule could be overridden by Congress. This provision was consistent with Article 4, Section 3 and 4, admission of new states and guarantee of a Republican government. Moving on to Article 6, there shall be neither slavery nor involuntary servitude in the said territory, otherwise than in punishment, in the punishment of crimes whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, provided always that any person escaping into the same from whom labor or service is lawfully claimed in any one of the original states such fugitive may be lawfully reclaimed and conveyed to the person claiming the, his or her labor or service, as aforesaid. In terms of the granting of personal liberty, this was an immense improvement over the original Constitution of the United States. Fugitive slave legislation was retained, however, but became difficult to enforce. So, what are the impressions that might come out of all of this. As a Bill of Rights, the Northwest Ordinances Section 14 was clearly superior to the original Constitution, which only had rights occasionally sprinkled throughout the document. Once the Bill of Rights was added to the Constitution, the latter was superior in its guarantee of freedom of speech, the press, assembly, the right to bear arms, restriction against quartering of troops, and the right to be secure in persons, houses, paper, and effects. Most of the amendments, uh, uh, 5 to 8, appear in Section 14 of the Northwest, or Northwest Ordinance, but in different language. The Northwest Ordinance lacks the language of Amendment 
9 of the Constitution, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the, the uh, people. And also the language in Amendment 10 of the Constitution, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. None of the Bills of Rights, from English Bill of Rights of 1689 to the Bill of Rights in the Constitution of the United States, provides adequate protection of the citizen against arbitrary seizure of the citizen's wealth through unconstitutional taxation and inflation. <laughs> Amen, Phil. And yes, inflation really is a, a form of hidden taxation. And wow, aren't we seeing that uh, take place today? I think it was uh, Nathan Rothschild who spoke about the uh, wonders of inflation because as a hidden form of taxation, not one in a thousand citizens would ever catch on to the fact that they were being taxed uh, by the inflation. But thank you also for the uh, the drawing of lines between our U.S. Bill of Rights and uh, Section 14 of of the uh, of of the Northwest Ordinance. Really, uh, it's amazing because they were laying the groundwork while the delegates were debating. Uh, in Philadelphia there and coming up with a constitution that lacked these protections. So obviously uh, the Northwest or Ordinance was influential in those states that basically sent to Tom, uh, well, sent to, to the first Congress uh, and uh, James Madison was the one who put together the Bill of Rights, but they sent, I think, around 300 suggestions of amendments to the constitution. And obviously the Northwest Ordinance uh, uh, protections for God-given rights were some of the things uppermost in the their mind. Well, the thing that I find is as we walk through this, there's a number of interesting things that are made here. When it talks about the freedom of religion and protection of religion that is in our First Amendment, that's in Article 1 of Section 14 in the Northwest Ordinance, no person demeaning himself in a peaceable and orderly manner shall ever be molested on account of his mode of uh, worship or religious sentiments in the said territory. So he's not saying that any religious practice is acceptable. For example, Mohammedan jihadists, they basically hold to the view that if you will not accept uh, the Quran as scripture and you will not bow down and become part of the Muslim system, then you are to be beheaded. And that's clearly stated in the Quran and honest Muslims agree that's what the text of the Quran demands of a faithful Muslim to do. So this Northwest Ordinance, which I believe is the backdrop for our First Amendment, we need to understand the First Amendment doesn't guarantee anybody can practice any so-called religion, whatever they choose. Indeed, they must be peaceable. They must in an orderly manner, that is, they must be uh, abiding by the laws of nature and nature's God in their practice. And if they're not, if they believe cutting off people's heads because they won't join their religious party, well, that's not peaceable. And obviously that's not in an orderly manner. So we misunderstand the freedom of religion today. 
because we have this idea that whatever religion you want to practice, that's fine. If you, you know, if you, human sacrifice is part of your religion, which it is for some religions in the world, they believe, you know, human sacrifice is what their idol that they worship demands of them. Well, no, no, no. That is not peaceable. That is not at all a mode of religious worship uh, that is in accordance with the laws of nature and nature's God. So we need to understand there are restrictions on the First Amendment. And actually, Article 1 here of Section 14 in the Northwest Ordinance is better stated that there are restrictions to uh, that freedom of religion. And by the way, many state constitutions, I'm thinking of the Maryland state constitution, uh, even it pu puts it in stronger terms uh, that the laws of morality cannot be violated by your so-called religious practice, and you claim that that is freedom of religion. So obviously human sacrifice or cutting people's heads off because they won't join your group, that's not the moral laws of nature and uh, nature's God. Now, uh, we see many other important protections, one of which in Section 2, or Article 2, rather, of Section 14, uh, talks about the course of common law. And as you mentioned, common law is not mentioned in the U.S. Constitution anywhere, but it's in the Seventh Amendment. And indeed, that was in an important protection of our God-given rights, that all persons shall be bailable unless for capital offenses. And it goes on with some detail, but the idea is that you should be set free and not imprisoned until you are brought to trial and bail needs to be set in a manner that, you know, is going to assure that you do appear for trial. But the whole idea is that you are innocent until proven guilty. And so you may have been charged with a crime and arrested for that crime and, and the path be laid before you that's going to lead to a trial where the jury is going to determine your guilt or your innocence. But until they've determined that you are guilty, you should not be held in prison unless, as it says here, that there's some great danger uh, to society because you've committed a capital offense. You've gone around murdering people, and therefore uh, it's it's evident that that society is not safe uh, because if you're head of jail, you're probably going to continue uh, that uh, murdering. And, of course, Phil, you've rightly pointed out the connections with the Fifth Amendment. And then there's uh, connections uh, regarding eminent domain also here in Article 2 that is protected by the Fifth Amendment. Full compensation shall be made if the government is taking uh, property from any person uh, or even demanding the services of any person for the common preservation. And this eminent domain was often used for uh, building highways and uh, maybe building some public buildings and so forth. But uh, we've seen the egregious abuse of that in the Kilo <laughs> v. New London Supreme Court decision that uh, we're going to talk about in, in the weeks ahead. And uh, Article 3 is very important because it speaks about religion and morality and knowledge being necessary to good government. In other words, there are few things that are important to good government, but there are even fewer that are absolutely necessary. It reminds me that Thomas Jefferson warned us that if anyone wants to be ignorant and free, they want what never was and never will be. So we need an educated electorate. We need an electorate that is moral. That is, they hold to the laws of nature and nature's God. We need an electorate that is religious. And by religious, in that era, they were referring to Christianity. They would have said, as uh, Webster's 1828 Dictionary, which is the first American dictionary, if you want to know what words mean 
In the founding era, the 1828 dictionary gives us that. And when they refer to religion in that dictionary, it also refers to false religions. And it actually names Mohammedanism, their word for Islam, uh, and Hinduism as false religions and atheism as a false religion as well. So we need to understand when our founders used the term religion, they were referring to Christianity in all of its orthodox branches uh, and not to every religious belief system around the world. But the, the end result of this, that religion, morality and knowledge being necessary to good government and the happiness of mankind, two things there, good government and human happiness, which the declaration said the uh, pursuit of happiness, one of the purposes, uh, one of the God given rights we have. It then concludes schools and the means of education shall forever be encouraged. Now, notice that word encouraged is very important to understand what that word encouraged is referring to, because there's many things that uh, you might encourage. Again, I'm referring to Webster's 1828 dictionary for the definition of encourage. It says to give courage to, to give or to increase confidence of success, to inspire with courage, spirit or strength of mind, to embolden, to animate, to incite, to inspirit. Uh, and he then used the biblical example of the charge to Joshua in Deuteronomy 3 and verse 28. Moses uh, charged Joshua and encouraged him and strengthened him. For he shall go over before this people and he shall cause them to inherit the land which thou shalt see. That's God speaking to Moses, encouraging Moses to encourage uh, uh, Joshua. Now, we need to remember, therefore, that encouragement doesn't necessarily mean funding. This doesn't say that they had to fund a public school system at all. And by the way, there was uh, the public system of, of government run schools was not invented until the 1830s. You know, we're talking about uh, four or five decades later before the idea was even voiced to say, oh, we need a government run education system. And that government run education system needs to be funded by the people. And if we look at what those people actually said who were proposing this government run education system, their purpose was twofold. Their purpose was to de-Christianize America. And they stated that they were not shy about stating they were going to de-Christianize America. And secondly, they were going to turn America into a socialist nation. And you look at the results of the public education system and yikes, they have been all too successful in those two evil goals. But this is saying the exact opposite. It's saying that the Christian religion and biblical morality need to be taught to the children and the parents can find whatever means of, of encouraging that. They can form a private school. They can get together a homeschool co-op or they can do there's even a, a hybrid uh, private, uh, not private, but hybrid homeschool and and private school where the kids go to class for, you know, two or maybe three days a week. And the rest of the time they're at home and their parents are working with them. So there's all kinds of options available by which education can be encouraged. And that's all the Northwest Ordinance was doing. It was encouraging uh, education, biblical education. Now, um, one of the other things that, that we ought to note here that uh, laid the groundwork in taxation uh, in our U.S. Constitution is Article 4, uh, which speaks about that the, the expenses of government are to be apportioned on them, that is, on the states by Congress, according to the same common rule and measure by which apportionments 
uh, thereof shall be made on the other state. So rather than the federal government directly reaching into your pocket, into your paycheck and taking the money from your paycheck, even before you see your paycheck, which is how the IRS does it today, no, 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 their system was, and the system that was designed in our Constitution was, that the states would each receive a tax bill from the federal government based upon the census, that is, how many people resided in their state, so a state with twice the population of another state would receive a tax bill from the federal government, twice the size of the smaller state, and that design was good because it left the collection process of that taxation in the hands of that state. And, and actually, this uh, article goes on to, to state that. It's, uh, the, the, each person paying the taxes for their proportion shall be laid and levied by the authority and direction of the legislatures of the districts or the uh, district or districts of the new states, as in the original states. And so, the states were in control of the tax collection process. That was not something the federal government was to have anything to do with. That was left to the states, knowing that that would be a far fairer system, one that was far less tyrannical and abusive, as our IRS uh, clearly has become uh, in, in this day and age. Um, and let me just uh, quickly run on. There's so much more here we could talk about. But let me just uh, quickly mention that uh, the Abolition of, well, I mean, Article 3, religion and morality and knowledge being necessary. They understood that Christianity was the basis upon which this system of government had to function. If you eliminate Christianity, the whole thing collapses. And by the way, the socialists who are forming the public education, they knew this. They knew that they could not create a socialist America without destroying the Christian foundation of our country. And then quickly mentioning Article 6, neither slavery or involuntary servitude. But they did not eliminate the fugitive slave structure, whereby someone escaping from slavery could be reclaimed and conveyed uh, to the person claiming his or her labor. By the way, that is an unbiblical standard. God's law says if your slave escaped from you, no one has a responsibility to return that slave to you. So this was an error that was uh, not only spoken here in the Northwest Ordinance, but then obviously also uh, in, in the Constitution uh, and the implications of the Constitution of Fugitive Slave Act, which was part of the reason the war between the states uh, was, uh, was fought. But let me just close with this statement. It refers at the very end to done in the United States in Congress assembled 13th day of July in the year of our Lord, 1787, and of their sovereignty, that is the sovereignty of each of the states, their sovereignty and independence, the 12th. Here's a direct reference to the Declaration of Independence of 1776. And we need to understand, as with our U.S. Constitution, the Declaration is the proper preamble. It is the why document. Why have government at all? What is its purpose? The how document, that is the nuts and bolts document, was first the Articles of Confederation, which uh, this legislation was crafted under. And then, of course, later it was our U.S. Constitution. But you cannot understand the U.S. Constitution until you have understood the Declaration of Independence. Well, Mike, what uh, thoughts do you have or research have you found on the uh, Northwest Ordinance? Thanks, Pastor Whitney. And taking a look at whether I could find anything cited, the Northwest Ordinance and this particular section, I was able to find something that's not only relevant, but fairly recent, and I thought it was interesting. Uh, we've got a, a case 
called Tim's versus Indiana, decided by the Supreme Court of the United States in 2019. And so I figured that the, this is going to be not only relevant, but fairly recent, something that we can all relate to. You might wonder how it got involved. And I'm going to explain that right now. So this is a case that had to do with civil forfeiture. And with civil forfeiture, uh, this is essentially when the government comes and they file proceedings to seize property that they claim is connected to illegal activity. Now, I can only speak to the process and the procedures here in Pennsylvania because this is where I deal with this stuff. Uh, but you have to understand that when they file these proceedings, first of all, uh, the person does not have to be convicted. It's a civil standard, so the government's got a much, much lower burden, so they don't have to prove anything beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, many times, they're not even charged when they're bringing these proceedings. Uh, you don't have the right to be appointed counsel in these proceedings. The notice requirements for these proceedings are lax, and uh, it's really a free-for-all. They end up bringing these proceedings, taking somebody's stuff, and what we see, unfortunately, are even instances where the police will take possession of property without any filings for civil forfeiture. So now the government's just got a hold of this person's property, and they haven't filed for forfeiture, but the person doesn't have their stuff. And whether or not the proceedings are filed for civil forfeiture, it's a really, really uh, difficult situation for people who end up on the wrong end of this. And why is that? Because a lot of times the property that was taken is valued at such an amount that it becomes cost prohibitive to try to fight this. For example, what I see most often is somebody's firearm is taken by the police. Um, maybe they're not even charged with the crime. I can think of a couple of instances where that happened, where the person's just involved in some kind of an incident. The police say, hey, we're going to take this for a while, and they won't give it back. They refuse to give it back, and you've got to go to court. You've got to file a return of property motion. You've got to go in front of the judge and argue, and who is going to want to spend thousands of dollars on an attorney to get back a $500 gun? It is simply cost prohibitive, so a lot of people end up just letting it go. And the police and the government get to take this person's property without any ramifications. And it's become very, very tricky to get any recourse with this stuff because it's not like it's one particular body or entity doing this one thing all the time and you can file a class action lawsuit. It's happening all over the place. And that makes it a lot more difficult to band people together and try to do something that makes it worthwhile. Now, with Tim's versus Indiana, Tim's was a guy in Indiana who pleaded guilty to dealing in a controlled substance and conspiracy to commit theft. When he got arrested, the police seized his car, which was a Land Rover that he bought for $42,000. Now, according to the facts of the case, he bought the car with money he got from his dad's life insurance policy when his dad died. And I'm sure his father would have been, uh, would have much approved of that purchase with the life insurance money. <laughs> but anyhow, $42,000. Tim's, for his conviction, his costs and fines were $1,203, right? So around 1200 bucks. but the car they took is worth $42,000. The max fine on this conviction was $10,000. So taking the $42,000 car was over four times the max penalty. And the question presented as set out in the opinion was as follows. Is the Eighth Amendment's excessive fines clause an incorporated protection applicable to the states under the Fourteenth Amendment's due process clause? Now, to answer this question, 
Justice Ginsburg, who authored the opinion, cited a familiar case to those of us who are Second Amendment supporters, McDonald versus City of Chicago. And in case you need your memory refreshed, this is the case where the court held that the Second Amendment protections interpreted in Heller applied to the states um, because, of course, Chicago was trying to get away with stuff that blatantly violated the right. Say, no, 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 that doesn't apply to us. Uh, the language that Ginsburg relied upon included that the safeguard was, quote, fundamental to our scheme of ordered liberty with deep roots in our history and tradition. And that phrase, history and tradition, uh, might sound familiar to those of us who read the recent New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin case, because that is exactly what uh, Justice Thomas harped on. Now, Ginsburg further reasoned that, quote, like the Eighth Amendment's prescriptions of cruel and unusual punishment and excessive bail, the protection against excessive fines guards against abuses of government's punitive or criminal law enforcement authority. The state's argument in this case was not really even about incorporating the excessive fines clause, but instead they solely argued that it didn't apply to civil in-rem forfeitures, arguing that the clause's specific application to such forfeitures is neither fundamental nor deeply rooted. Uh, but Ginsburg noted the Supreme Court had already held in a case called Austin versus United States that civil in-rem forfeitures do, in fact, fall within the clause's protection when they are, quote, at least partially punitive. And Ginsburg went on to say that they weren't going to overrule Austin because that issue wasn't properly before the court, and then went on to say that the court didn't need to determine whether the right in relation to the specific process itself was fundamental or deeply rooted, saying that basically that's not how we evaluate these things. And she cited a case where the court ruled on social media in the First Amendment without having to decide whether the free speech clause's application to social media was fundamental or deeply rooted. So the Northwest Ordinance ends up getting cited almost tangentially in a separate opinion authored by Justice Clarence Thomas. He concurred in the judgment, meaning he agreed with the result, but he disagreed with how they got there. In his opinion, I'm going to read a little bit of an excerpt for it. Uh, Justice Thomas ultimately said that he wouldn't have gotten to the result by way of due process, but instead would have gotten there by way of privileges and immunities. And he said, quote, when the states were considering whether to ratify the Constitution, advocates for a separate Bill of Rights emphasized the need for an explicit prohibition on excessive fines mirroring the English prohibition. In colonial times, fines were the drudge horse of criminal justice, probably the most common form of punishment. To some, this fact made a constitutional prohibition on excessive fines all the more important. As the well-known anti-federalist Brutus argued in an essay, the prohibition on excessive fines was essential to the security of liberty and was as necessary under the general government as under that of the individual states. For the power of the former is as complete to the purpose of requiring bail, imposing fines, inflicting punishments, and seizing property as the others. Similarly, during Virginia's ratification, ratifying convention, Patrick Henry pointed to Virginia's own prohibition on excessive fines and said that it would, quote, depart from the genius of your country for the federal constitution to omit a similar prohibition. Debate on uh, the Virginia Convention and three debates on the federal constitution 
is ultimately where he cited that to come from. Henry continued, when we come to punishments, no latitude ought to be left, nor dependence put on the virtue of representatives to define punishments without this control. Governor Edmund Randolph responded to Henry, arguing that Virginia's charter was, quote, nothing more than an investor in the hands of the Virginia citizens of those rights which belong to British subjects. According to Randolph, the exclusion of excessive bail and fines would follow of itself without a Bill of Rights. For such fines would never be imposed absent corruption in the House's representative, Senate, and President, or judges acting contrary to justice. For all the debate about whether an explicit prohibition on excessive fines was necessary in the federal constitution, all agreed that the prohibition on excessive fines was a well-established and fundamental right of citizenship. When the excessive fines clause was eventually considered by Congress, it received hardly any discussion before. It was agreed to by a considerable majority. And when the Bill of Rights was ratified, most of the states had a prohibition on excessive fines in their constitution, which is where he cites various constitutions as well as the Northwest Ordinance. He goes on, early commentary on the clause confirms the widespread agreement about the fundamental nature of the prohibition on excessive fines. Justice Story, writing a few decades before the ratification of the 14th Amendment, explained that the 8th Amendment was adopted as an admonition to all departments of the national government to warn them against such violent proceedings as had taken place in England in the arbitrary reigns of some of the stewards, when enormous fines were sometimes imposed. Story included the prohibition on excessive fines as a right, along with the right to bear arms, and other prote others protected by the Bill of Rights that operates as a qualification upon powers actually granted by the people to the government. Without such a restriction, the government's exercise or abuse of its power could be dangerous to the people. So I think that was very well said by Justice Thomas in his concurring opinion. I find the interesting issue, perhaps it's just because I'm a nerd, <laughs> or maybe because I see exactly the harm that this stuff does to people on a daily basis. Amen. Do, do we happen to know whether Tim's got his Land Rover back? Uh, uh, we don't. We don't. <laughs> I'd presume he would based on the way uh, Ginsburg kind of gave them a spanking. <laughs> <laughs> we we sat here in our county, Anne Arundel County, Maryland, with our chief of police a number of years back and we're asking him and challenging him about this civil asset forfeiture. And we discovered in that conversation that they expected an income. The police had it so so crafted that they expected an income. They had this in their budget line that they expected to take at least $400,000 every year out of the pockets of the citizens that they stopped on the road. I, I call that highway robbery. I mean, they may call it civil asset forfeiture. It looks like highway robbery to me. It's really incredible because a lot of times when uh, the average person hears about this stuff, they figure it's when like Tony Montana. I know that Tony Montana is not real, um, but, you know, the Scarface type drug dealers uh, get put away. El Chapo, let's say. 
and they take away all their stuff and nobody cares about those guys, but they don't realize the impact it has on regular everyday hardworking people who in many instances have not done nothing wrong, right? Because that's why we have a criminal justice system. And I've made this argument till I'm right in the face in front of judges and in these types of cases where the person doesn't even get charged with a crime. So you're on a, they're claiming that this was involved and connected to criminal activity. And you know what usually comes to the criminal activity? Criminal charges, which we don't even have here, Your Honor. Uh, to my knowledge, I believe this is based on an ACLU study. Pennsylvania law enforcement have taken over $100 million in private property based on civil asset forfeiture. That's spent on a gargantuan scale. It's just outrageous. Our government has been turned into thieves. A little here, a little there. (laughs) And I know that that anytime you're doing anything in cash today, you know, if if, if it's more than $10,000, whoever is receiving is supposed to file this form with the IRS and report on you that you must be a drug dealer because you're making a purchase in cash. Well, why not? When did cash become illegal when did, it be, when did it become a crime to have cash? I think they, those bills say on them, you know, they're payable as legal tender for all debts, public and private. I think that's on the bill, isn't it? <laughs> Last time that. I checked. Yeah. <laughs> but that the cash is incredibly dangerous in these situations. If you get accused of a crime and you got cash laying around, that can be a real, real problem. It discourages people who are in the know about this stuff from carrying cash um, or keeping cash on hand. Uh, but certainly a lot of people learn that the hard way. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think people who are in the know would want to use cash because they realize every time you use a credit card, every time you use a check, the government is adding that to your dossier. They know more about the money you spend than you yourself know. They keep a complete record of every uh, financial transaction you make through your bank or any financial transaction you make with your credit card. That's information they should not have. That's a violation of the Fourth Amendment. But (laughs) when can we expect our our government to ever obey the law? Why does this guy order so many UFC fights and buy so many vitamins? Mm. Well, one of the things I'd love to see is that there is a state that stands up to this criminality, because what I understand, at least from our chief of police, that there's a deal that's been made between the feds and the local police force, because many cases is the case here in Maryland. It's against the law for them to do civil asset forfeiture, but they get around it by making it a federal case. And the feds promise, usually the DEA, they promise that, you know, if you make this a federal case, we'll give a cut of the money that you that you scoop up. We'll give a cut of that money back to the police force and police forces have spent they've shown that they've spent this money on things like pina colada machines for their office. I mean, all right. OK, you really need that for uh, effective police enforcement, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it sounds a lot like organized crime, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> you start talking about paying cuts and everything like that, that's a problem. So I guess the question is, can we end this? I mean, is there a way that we can stop this criminality on the part right. of the government? Yeah, that's that's to be determined, I suppose. I know that in terms of these issues we're constantly dealing with, with firearms that are confiscated, it's incredibly difficult because it's not like you see it all happening in one particular county through one particular agency and it's one pattern of practice you get them all over the place so there's a lot of uh, 
different places doing this sort of thing and to get enough people together where it would make it worthwhile to bring that kind of a case uh, you know that that becomes difficult mm. because people don't want to spend you know thousands of dollars to get a $500 gun back you know once in a while you get somebody who wants to do something based on principle um, but usually beyond actually getting the gun back <laughs> mm. that's where uh their uh, financial threshold for principle runs out <laughs> yeah so i guess really our, we're back to the executive branch or the legislative branch to solve the problem if we had a sheriff who truly is a constitutional sheriff he would not allow civil asset forfeiture to take place in his county and obviously the legislature of the state or the legislature of uh, the county could uh, pass legislation against civil asset forfeiture. But like I mentioned, when the feds want to make it a federal case, then they excuse the violation of the law of the state saying, well, this is not a, not the state's business. This is the feds involved in taking these assets and the local police are simply participating with the federal law enforcement. And again, one of the problems that I don't know that our founders foresaw one of the problems of allowing any federal police force is that we see the corruption and the lack of accountability of such a federal police force. The FBI being a, you know, such a, a, a huge example of a completely out of control uh, police force that has been federal for too many years. Oh, there is a problem, and that's that this is not a popular issue. This is not something that a lot of people are willing to go to bat for because a lot of the constituents, even those who pride themselves on believing in our Constitution, have that would never happen to me disease. Mm. And you see a lot of that would never happen to me disease uh, among people when it has never happened to them. But just because something has never happened to you doesn't mean it never will happen to you. I mean, I could sit here and say I've never died before. That doesn't mean <laughs> I'm never going to die. And I often have to remind people that any time they say that would never happen to me, they have something in common with every single client I've ever had throughout my entire career mm. because every single one of them thought it would never happen to them. I've never sat down with somebody and had them say, well, Mike, you know, I always knew this was coming. It was just a matter of time. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess that takes us back to what Jesus commanded, the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. If we see wicked injustice being done to our neighbor – we might think, well, that'll never happen to me, but we ought to be concerned that it's happening to our neighbor uh, because we love our neighbor uh, as if we were in his shoes. Very well said. Very well said. Now, I'm amazed by the fact that that uh, property can be seized and uh, not not returned. Uh, and you know, I, I understand the case where uh, somebody has uh, committed a crime. Um, there has been a, a, uh, a trial uh, by jury, let us say. Uh, guilt has been ascertained by that that uh, uh, jury. All the appeals have run out, uh, and the person is is labeled a criminal for that act. Well, okay, that now you fall back on um, non-excessive fines. What are what would be considered excessive? Uh, there ought to be a great deal of experience uh, built up over time about what is excessive and what is not excessive uh, in terms of fines. Uh, and how how can you justify not returning that property or at least the balance of the property after the fine has been uh, uh, enacted? Uh, how do you justify that? I, I, I just don't get it. 
uh, Mike, maybe I don't know if you could help us understand this, but I thought I understood that what's really happening with civil asset forfeiture is the product, the uh, either the money or the gun or or the car or whatever the item is, is really the item that's being said is guilty of committing a crime. Even so, even if the individual driving the car is innocent or the individual who had the money in his in his wallet is innocent, somehow the money or the car or whatever, they're criminal in their activity. And so somehow you've personalized the money and or the, <laughs> the pro and so it's a criminal that's being put on trial and we're gonna confiscate and put this prisoner put it in prison. Oh, oh, but the prison means the, the government gets to use that uh, you know, the assets that were that were seized. Is that a proper understanding here? Yeah, hey, uh, your sentence is you you're you, Mr. Lamborghini, are gonna ride around with me for a while, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've never heard it quite put that way, but uh, it's certainly the the fact that it's a separate proceeding and a completely separate issue as to innocence or guilt. Um, can you meet that lower burden, that lower civil preponderance of the evidence, more likely than not burden, uh, that this uh, this particular property was connected to illegal activity? I don't know that it committed it itself. I've never heard it described that way. I could be wrong. Um, you know, perhaps you heard something that I haven't, but it's, it's, we're both certainly on the same page as a completely separate proceeding. And I think that's why Phil stopped driving around in his Lamborghini <laughs> with his fur coat and his money bags. Because <laughs> what, one of the things that I've heard, and again, this is from other people who've had this experience that, uh, all cash that is in, in any circulation of any, any length of time, may have a smattering of drugs on it because so much drug money is going through the system and so forth. And so if you, you have money in your wallet, there may well be some residue of some drugs on it. And so if a drug dog is brought to you and they sniff your wallet, the dog is going to alert the authorities that that money has been involved in a crime because there's some drug residue on that money and therefore that money is criminal and we've got to take that money from you uh, because it was involved in a crime. I, that, that's what I've heard. I don't know if that I, registers. I told, it's totally believable if you really get into the science behind the stuff and see the way uh, matter transfers and everything. We could even talk about DNA transfers and stuff like that. And incredibly believable. And one thing that I've always found a little bizarre <laughs> is how uh, the courts have uh, viewed dogs as completely infallible in these situations. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, we're all on the same page that humans could make mistakes, right? You could have a guy who's who's gone to Harvard and Yale and everything, but that guy is certainly, he could make a mistake. But never a dog. A dog can never make a <laughs> Man's best friend. Huh? <laughs> oh, my. Well, the civil asset forfeiture thing is just one of the things that when you see what's being done around the country and what abuse has happened, then obviously there are people who are criminals and their goods have been taken. But there's plenty of innocent people that have been swept up in this. And it's an egregious violation uh, of our Constitution and uh, should be stopped if we have a government that really is from we the people that's designed to protect our God-given rights. Well, we are ending our, our study here of the Northwest Ordinance, which really is a conclusion of our larger study of the Articles of Confederation and what that uh, government was uh, accomplishing positively and negatively. And, and next week, we're going to launch into a brand new study. We kind of propose calling it Dirty Dozen, that is, 
a dozen bad Supreme Court decisions that affected the misinterpretation of our Constitution. But actually, it's probably going to be more than a dozen because there's a lot of cases that once they have been decided have taken us in the wrong direction, a misinterpretation or a misapplication of our Constitution. So we're excited about this new series, and we'd love to hear back from you. Uh, my email, if you want to contact the show, is dwhitney, D-W-H-I-T-N-E-Y, at theamericanview.com, theamericanview.com. And uh, we invite you to join us and check out the, our podcast on 1180 WFYL. When you click on that, click on podcast, we're right down the bottom of the list. We the people, the Constitution matters. Also invite you to check out Mike Jeremita's show, uh, Mike G in the morning, 7 o'clock Friday mornings. Join us again next Friday morning at 8 a.m.